This show is part of the RetroZap.com podcast network. You will never find the more wretched hive of scum and villainy. We must be cautious. Hello, and welcome to Beltway Banthas, a Star Wars podcast live from the hive of scum and villainy in our very own galaxy, Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Stephen Kent. I'm your host, Suara Saleh. And today, we're going to talk about the big bombad politician, Jaja Beast of the Naboo. <laughs> oh, that felt so good. Did you have to do that? <laughs> <laughs> of course, Elisa had to do that. Oh <laughs> we're gonna, we're talking about Jar Jar today. I couldn't keep it serious. I couldn't keep it serious, Swar. I'm sorry. This is, we're gonna... Listen, we are doing a serious politician profile of one of the most significant actors in galactic politics in history. This is a serious subject. Yep, Jar Jar changed the course of galactic history. That's why it's important that we have to talk about him, and we can't just ignore the fact that Jar Jar cast a deciding vote in the Senate to give emergency powers to Sheev Palpatine. No life is insignificant, and so Jar Jar, Wisa, will discuss... (laughs) Oh, so I know you're excited. This has been on your heart and your mind for like a a year now with Beltway Bandos. And we've been been putting it off. It definitely hasn't been on my heart and mind for a year, but I will say... Heart and mind. but But I will say that... Researching this topic has been really fascinating. And historically, I've not been the biggest fan of Jar Jar, but I think I'm gaining some appreciation for this Gungan. I'm actually really excited to discuss this right now. Well, what are we so going to learn about Jar Jar? We will will get to that and more here shortly. We will be discussing Jar Jar and the nature of his political ignorance here shortly. But first, Swara, could you please give me and the audience a little update on what might be churning in the world of Star Wars books? Okay, so literally this morning, Del Rey Star Wars... Uh, tweeted out a gif of uh, my beloved, our beloved uh, Chancellor Palpatine with his it's treason then uh, classic moment and then later tweeted gif, gif however you want to pronounce it, of Krennic's are we blind? Or no, sorry, uh, not that one. Other great quote we sit here amongst my achievements not yours and this got people really excited. It got me really excited because... Got you very excited. Yes, yes. yes I actually thought we were going to get a Palpatine novel, maybe a Krennic novel, maybe the both of them. Maybe some- If I remember it correctly, you just jumped into my DMs and were like, Palpatine novel, I, it's, yeah. it's a thing. And I, I, you know, I just take your word on it because you're more connected to the day-to-day than I am with this. Mm-hmm. And I, so I immediately hop on Twitter and I'm like, it's happening, a Palpatine novel. We're going to recanonize play or something and I didn't really turn out that yeah I completely jumped the gun it's actually another Thrawn novel with Palpatine and Krennic in it yay (laughs) (sighs) okay yeah so the premise 
the premise of of this book um it's called it's called thrawn treason hence the treason gift and this is this is the third thrawn book uh from timothy zahn in this new line of of thrawn's canon um so i think this is taking place somewhere in sort of the timeline of the rebels tv show Mm -hmm. where uh, Thrawn's TIE Defender program is being put on ice in favor of Director Krennic's Death Star program, a.k.a. Stardust, and there's going to be some some serious tension that arises there in that relationship, so we're going to get a lot of, I think, jousting, uh, sort of like we did with Tarkin and Krennic between um, Thrawn and Krennic. And then we will also be faced in this book with some danger to Thrawn's homeworld, which will force him yeah. to make a decision about his loyalties, thus the title Treason. Yeah, his former uh, assistant friend, Eli Vanta, who had gone to Thrawn's homeworld, makes a return in the third Thrawn novel with dire warnings about what the Chiss are going to do or what they're going to try to do. So, yeah, I think it should be interesting to have more of those internal imperial dynamics explored. I think it'll give us like really good content to talk about as we learn more about the Empire. But I got to say, I was, you know, especially as I hyped up a Palpatine novel for myself, credit (laughs) novel for myself, I was personally a little disappointed it felt personally predictable to me. I'm, and I was also thinking, like, why do you have to use a Palpatine gif? It's just like such yep. gave yep. me such they false teased hope. Us. They teased they us. They us. They teased yeah. us really well. I will say that it makes sense. The Thrawn, the recent Thrawn novels have been New York Times bestsellers. So, and typically with books, you make trilogies. So it makes financial sense. It makes narrative sense. I personally am not the biggest fan of Thrawn. Um, and I will just say, not personally the biggest fan of Timothy Zahn's writing. Uh, I respect him and his many, many fans, and I'm very happy for them. And good for you to get like, this <laughs> content you'll enjoy. I just am waiting ever so patiently for that James Lucino Palpatine novel. Yeah, so, I'm not. Yeah. I'm not super picky about about authors. Uh, I, I guess I, I do defer to James Lucino. Those are books that I have always enjoyed. Timothy right. Zahn, the way that he writes, it kind of it just goes over my head. I don't follow. I, I don't understand the language that he uses, the prose. It's it's too much for me, and th- that's fine. I have not enjoyed the Thrawn books very much uh, at all, and I, I've sort of mocked them a little bit as being like Sherlock Holmes, but in Star Wars, I, mm-hmm. I'm just not very into it, and the political intrigue is not that interesting. So, you know, we got to get some new canon for Palpatine's back. I mean, we, this is coming from the James Lucino Plagueis world where we had Palpatine's childhood, the relationship with his father, him murdering his own family in cold blood. Uh, it was a fantastic book. And it's actually the kind of thing that I think should just be canonized and not be redone. Right. Although there are a lot of sort of forced details in there, especially with Plagueis. And they allude to that might have been the creation of Anakin from Plagueis mm-hmm. and Palpatine. That's dicey. That would be super dicey and cut right to the heart of the chosen one for stuff because you got to admit, on that front, Lucasfilm has been very tight-lipped and like kept the... Chest I, the, cho- the whole chosen one prophecy, I think, is complete 
mess at this point. Like it's just nonsense. I don't I even agree. understand. They've they've bungled the prophecy in Star Wars. I think one hundred and ten percent, where we we don't have a clear understanding of what the entire point of the prophecy was, what midi chlorians really do, where Anakin came from. It, it just it was a really badly put together piece of of mythology <laughs> so. I, I agree i think it was a mistake personally from the start and that also has a lot of fans and i've learned a lot from that uh sort of discourse about it i think particularly the best uh aspect of it is the mortis trilogy from clone wars i think that gives us which they, those, yeah, were, those are written by george lucas himself those give us a great insight into what he was conceiving for the chosen one prophecy but I agree with you. As a whole, it's rather been jumbled. It's been confusing. It's, you know, we say, oh, Anakin brought balance to the force at the end of episode six. But guess what? There's still evil beings in the galaxy. And as we see in the sequel trilogy, the galaxy is still totally out of balance. Uh, it, Yeah, in my opinion, it just shouldn't have come about. I don't think it's been very well done. Uh, I think that Lucasfilm at the moment maybe are trying to maybe have people not pay as much attention to it i could be wrong about that but i guess we'll see you could be uh by the way are you still following star wars resistance on yes. disney i i i'm actually very behind i completely forgot about the show mostly because it, it didn't really sink its its claws into me um i got three episodes in, kind of forgot and i watched a fourth one today I have to say, I'm just sort of thinking it's like a situational comedy at this point. It, did, oh, do they really? They do. do they really? Do they lock into a story they, at some they point? They do. For the past couple of episodes, have been full of a lot of intrigue, a lot of delving into the mystery of what the First Order is trying to do on the Colossus. And let me just say, uh, yeah, I've been watching every single episode, and I love resistance it is honestly my favorite okay. of all okay. star wars animation maybe my favorite star wars show i mean the only star wars shows have been animation but you know what i mean it, it, yeah it, yeah it is, totally yeah but not for long <laughs> yeah we got the mandalorian we got uh those other shows uh cast and andor series coming up so yeah totally but honestly catch up because it's it's really intriguing where they're going especially the most recent episode i think it gives okay. us a lot to That's talk good about to as well. Yeah, I've I've kind of fallen out of it, and and every episode doesn't really feel like it's going somewhere. But I will tough it out and find out what is up with Star Wars Resistance. Um, Swara, you still ready to talk about Jar Jar, the politician of the Bombad World? Naboo, I am ready. Let's do this. All right. So, like we teed up in the beginning, Jar Jar Binks is a nobody who makes a a just a rocket rise to war hero <laughs> on Naboo, and then a junior senator from the world and enters the world of politics, uh, just all over the course of a a very fast decade for this young Gungan, and he changes the course of galactic history with his involvement in. Uh, political affairs in the galaxy. So we got to talk about him and we're going to break down his beginning, his middle, his end, and then talk about what Jar Jar means to us um, as civic people, but also as fans of Star Wars. So I think just for background, who is this Gungan man of mystery who comes uh, running into the forest and tripping over Qui-Gon and Obi-Wan? Uh, I, I pretty much he's we don't know 
anything about him beyond that he was a a sort of a town kook, a guy who broke things and, and would trip over stuff. He was clumsy, and he was banished from Otaganga by Boss Nass for crashing his submarine, which I think they describe in episode one, but it's sort of like in, in Gungan dialect, and it's hard to understand. <laughs> um, but but it was a submarine right. crash that got him finally banned from Otaganga. And then from there, Swar, like he, it sort of all happens quite fast for him. Yeah, he's really swept into this. He falls into Qui-Gon's arms, basically. Uh, and, you know, at the very last minute before he's sentenced, for coming back to Odo Gunga, you know, presumably it might be an execution, something like super dire or jail or whatever. How do you think they execute people in Odo Gunga? Oh, um, hmm. hmm. There's a question. <laughs> what would you do? What would you do for an execution in Odo Gunga? I didn't see any blades yeah. or any sort of devices like my that mind, in Odo Gunga. My mind just went super dark. It didn't have to be an execution. It could have just been jail time or something, but, uh, I don't know. They say, I, I, I could yeah. see the Gungans. I could see the Gungans uh, doing um, uh, drawing and quartering. Oh my god! <laughs> and then he's fed to like the bigger fish. Oh my god! Like a frog. <laughs> yeah. Like oh a no! Frog. This episode got yeah. dark super fast. <laughs> I I definitely view them as a capital punishment species. Yeah, I, I would I, I concur with that actually. Yeah, they seem to have like very <laughs> dire punishments for. Uh, those crimes of uh, clumsiness, obviously. So, uh, but yeah, Qui Gon yeah. then saves him because apparently the life debt, which we know is a big thing in Wookiee culture, is also a big thing in Gungan culture. So, you know, like he says, I saved this Gungan's life when he fell into my arms. So let me whisk him away with me, <laughs> like to, you know, help us with our mission here on Naboo and stuff. Cause like, he owes me and it's like super ingrained in gungan culture to honor this sort of uh understanding then like jar jar goes on with them and uh you know he gets swept up with the queen of naboo no less and it's really there that we have his entry point into galactic politics yeah, he becomes a guy who brokered peace between two factions on Naboo or two species on Naboo who uh, were hostile. I, it, was there was there military violence between the Naboo and the Gungans or was it really just sort of like a cultural and economic freeze out? Because I would imagine that the Gungans did not want to be relegated to the bottom oh, of the yeah. sea. I mean, I think a lot of the implication is that the Nubians, like the Naboo people, essentially colon yeah, yeah, like that's like uh what uh Wado calls like yeah, yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. I think there's a large implication that they essentially colonized the planet or colonized the land around which the Gungans lived. And you see that and you see and you see that a lot in uh historical geography uh with colonization. So you know what? Do you think do you think do you think the Gungans are the native yes. species and the Nubians Nubians migrated there at some point? Oh, yeah, in 100%. History? And I think that's alluded to in yeah. some Legends content as well that there was a, a skirmish between them and it led to the Gungans being, you know, sh- uh, shifted under mm. underwater. It, I'm picking up some picking up some new world right. vibes yeah. here. Yeah. I th- I, th- I think like that yeah. might have been some of the implication. Uh 
And yeah, so they definitely, I mean, they lived in relative peace for an amount of time, but obviously the Gungans didn't like the humans and maybe vice versa. You know, there's that interspecies resentment going on there. And Jar Jar proved to be the one who could help reconcile them. You know, I think in episode two, we see Gungans walking the streets of Theed, you know, the capital city of Naboo. You know, there's like a strong alliance then. That's fascinating. I, I actually had not thought about that too much in the run up to this episode is is why were they relegated down to the bottom of the sea when you have Gungan monuments and relics and statues up in the forest. Exactly. Uh, all this stuff to ex- yeah, all this stuff to explain that there's something much deeper there. But so so he helps to to build a friendship uh, with Amidala, with the Jedi, and bring in Nas to the fold for the purposes of mutual survival. He successfully helps convince or bring the parties together so that they can be convinced that they will both be destroyed uh, and subjugated by uh, the Trade Federation. And so this happens very fast for him. And then Amidala, I guess, in the course of 10 years between episode one and two, she uh, finishes her term as queen because in uh, on the Naboo, they, they do terms um, for royalty. Uh, and then she goes on to be a senator. And Jar Jar Binks becomes a junior representative uh, for the Naboo, serving alongside Amidala once um, you know, she became that planet senator. Do we know exactly what a junior rep is? I think I think it's like that, an, imagine the U.S. Senate. We've got our senior senators and junior senators. Junior senators being those who have been elected next after the longer serving uh, senior senator. So I think it's sort of like that. Except a Jar Jar wasn't elected. B I don't think. Yeah, yeah, they're appointed by the, exactly. by the royalty, by the monarch. And these yeah. plants that call themselves democracies do so many appointments, <laughs> especially for their elected representatives. We've, we've talked about this previously on the podcast. Yeah, it's it's kind of a recurring subject, you know, because we always talk about, you know, is the galactic is the galactic senate like the U.S. Congress? Is it like Parliament or is it like the U.N.? And in this sense, it's mm-hmm. like the U.N. because the people who get sent there are not elected reps; they're they're appointees um, and political appointees or people that were confirmed, whatever. But they're they're you know, it's like Nikki Haley right. going like, you know, the, the U S people did not vote to send her except there. Here, um, except the here they have that. real policy power, like Jar Jar's actions yeah. and attack of the clones. Like we've touched upon previously have really changed the course of galactic history, you know, and giving our good boy Palpatine, like those emergency powers he worked hard, so hard for. And it's Padme, you know, when she has to get off of Coruscant and go to Naboo for her own safety, uh, you know, think about that plan, going to your home planet to try to escape assassins. Like, wouldn't that, anyway, (laughs) never mind. It had to be a romantic getaway. The the assassin will never know to look at my lake house that I've been going to since I was a child. Um... (laughs) They'll never look for me here. <laughs> she probably would have been safer hiding in Odo Gunga. <laughs> but, right? Yeah, right? absolutely. <laughs> absolutely. They would have never found her in Odo Gunga. It's, it's complete nonsense. But, so, you know, so Jar Jar, 
Yeah, in the context of of Padme and the assassination attempts, Jar Jar sort of falls into having more power than I think he was intended to have, I guess, as junior representative in this situation. He follows Padme's lead, probably votes as Padme would vote. Or, oh wait, do they only get one vote per world? Do Jar Jar... They've got I think, to, I only I have think one it's vote, one vote right? per world because um, as a junior representative, yeah. he was, I guess, meant to be a deputy of sorts to Padme because like, you know, yes. when she goes off, I like, again, when she goes off of Coruscant, she says, Representative Binks, I'm counting on you like to do this in a sense. So I presume that in the intervening, yeah. in the intermediate uh, 10 years between uh, Phantom Menace and Attack of the Clones, uh, you know, Padme was trying to groom him or like was bringing him on missions to or wait, actually, no, because Padme was still queen until like two years before Attack of the Clone. So maybe in the Nubian royal court, she was uh, helping groom him. Maybe he was acting as a representative between the Gungans and the Naboo. And maybe she thought he could be because he had brought about this reconciliation between the two species that he could be a good legislative aide as well and help represent the Gungan interests you know, as well. I wonder if Padme had any choice in this or if under sort of the new political situation on, on Naboo and with, you know, peace and prosperity, you know, with the Gungans and the Nubians going on that, you know, the, the, yes. the Gungans picked him as the guy who was going to go and, I can't imagine Padme being like thrilled about it. Okay, that. I, I Padme, accept this headcanon 100%. It was Boss Nass, just like when he appointed Jar Jar Bombad yeah. General, he was like, okay, you said the uh, representative for our planet too. <laughs> yeah. Boss Nass, Boss Nass loves Jar Jar after episode one. He's thrilled with him with all the back padding and the hugs. And you know, he really thinks very highly of Jar Jar at the end of that. It's got to be a situation where the, the Gungans were, were probably promised under new sorts of arrangements on Naboo that, you know, they would get to send a representative along with the lead senator uh, to have a voice and to have a seat at the table. And they picked Jar Jar. Padme was there for that entire movie. I can't imagine that she wanted Jar Jar as an understudy. He's a uh, guy who gets in the way. I think this is going to break the hearts of so many people with headcanons that Jar Jar and Padme were super... I mean, they were still... I'm sure they still were friends, maybe even close friends, but Padme just like, in a professional context, didn't want him to be her deputy. Yeah, I mean... It's got to be more like babysitting than like a deep sort of colleague yeah, friendship. No, in, in my opinion, in my opinion. <laughs> but go, going going back to the assassination, just just kind of thinking about the Palpatine plan here because we know what's coming. Palpatine. Uh, helps to move Padme off of the playing field, and Masameda moves in on Jar Jar in some meetings that uh, transpire in Episode Two, planting the seeds in his mind that you know if only Senator Amidala were here, she'd have the courage to vote on emergency powers. And it sort of makes you wonder if 
the plan for the separatists being Dooku, Palpatine, aka Sidious, did they actually want to try to kill Padme in that initial bombing? Did they actually try, really think that she was going to get killed by Zam Wessel and, and the worms? Or were they just trying to get her to do the part thing where she flees uh, and has to go into hiding so that she can't be there for the vote? Yeah, sir, sir. I, I I kind of question whether or not so they actually wanted. We know dead. that Palpatine wanted the army, so he wanted Padme, you know, out of the picture somehow. Although it does strategically, you know, for the separatists, I think it struck a good balance because you know Newt Gunray won her dead because he embarrassed or she embarrassed him in front of the whole galaxy. Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, he's the Trade Federation guy, uh, so. I'm not sure. I think that the I think that a good confluence was found where they would attempt uh, make attempts on Padme's life. Although it did seem like Django and Zam Wessel in Attack of the Clones were like really, really keen on trying to kill her. But somehow she made it out. So I, I'm really uncertain. Yeah. Well, yeah, I'm sure. I'm sure they were. I'm sure they, as the contractors, were quite invested in killing her. But I kind of wonder if the the realism of Palpatine really believed that it would work, or if it was just enough to be so that he could be in the situation to say, "No, my dear, like I do think it is serious, and you're going to you're going to leave, and you're going to have Jedi, you know, guards, and you're going to go off and and be in hiding at this time." It could just be, you know, that he just sort of adapted his plan after the assassination attempts failed. Um, You know, it's not like he's some sort of angel who wouldn't dare lay a hand on Padme and have her killed. But I just, I don't know, the whole thing sort of seemed half-hearted to me uh, for for a Sith ordering a hit on people. I feel like it would be more effective if he was actually serious about it. He may have actually been working Uh, things behind the scenes. I mean, particularly with uh, the appointment of Obi-Wan and Anakin, him knowing Anakin's feelings for Padme and how far he would go to protect her so it was definitely you know i think our boy palpatine like knew how to manipulate the situation so that padme would be like like you said like he could simply say to her no my dear i think it's very serious and you should get off world uh, and like leave jar jar in her stead yeah well after he manages to move Padme off the board and Jar Jar steps up to sort of fill that role, gets preyed on by Masameda, who is the chief of staff for Palpatine and definitely in on what Palpatine is up to. We've discussed that in previous episodes. He is, he's got to be aware of what is going on on team Palpatine uh, and is complicit in it. And he helps to move Jar Jar in the direction of voting to give emergency powers to the chancellor uh, for the creation of an army, which Palpatine not would would not have actually uh, gone for. Now let's roll some quick audio of Jar Jar committing the act. Chancellor. 
Okay, so that's Jar Jar in his own eloquent words, uh, dooming the galaxy to a uh, total- totalitarian fate. Uh, thank you uh, very much, it's Jar Jar. Just, buddy, like you, you could. He's so he's so proud it's of himself. So sad. And it's really it's sad. just like. You couldn't have thought to actually try to reach out to Padme, maybe try and consult with her. It just, like, and you've been with Padme, or you've, like, been friends with Padme for years. Do they not have have email? Exactly, like a hologram recording or something, like, to just consult her on this. (laughs) And I'm sure, like, I, I don't know, like, is it... Like, I, I, maybe Padme, it just didn't occur to Padme to say, don't do any big, potentially stupid votes, like, while I'm not here. It, it, it like, yeah. yeah. It's kind of absurd. Padme is a political operator, and I think she had to have known that this vote was going to move forward. And, oh my gosh, me, myself and right? Jar need to be on the same page about about what Naboo thinks about this issue. And they clearly did not have a meeting. They didn't have a meeting to discuss how is Naboo going to vote on the matter of the creation of a clone army. Now, maybe this wasn't a direct vote on the creation of a clone army. It was a it was a direct vote on emergency powers, but it was stated for the purpose yeah, it was of a de facto the creation vote of a clone an army, army, which yeah. could only be done. Yeah, it just it sort of is mind boggling to me. And this is sort of where you see that it's a Star Wars movie and not House of Cards, which is quite meticulous and sort of making sure that all the boxes are checked in political maneuvering. Um, Padme and Jar Jar would have been on the same team. They would have had a, a staff, a staff that that has policy positions that believes certain things and that knows what that office believes in. Um, so where is the political staff for the office? Of it's the so Buddha? ridiculous. It's, it's ridiculous. And i like i want to know more about this you know we're gonna get a novel coming up uh, about padme's transition from queen to senator uh queen shadow by ek johnston i'm really looking forward to that novel uh maybe we'll get some more jar jar content in there and it can explain to us like more about like their personal dynamics so i guess we'll have to wait and see yeah, well, uh, the Clone Wars come next after Jar Jar helps open up Pandora's box. Uh, Suara, there was some stuff going on in Jar Jar's bio during the war that I didn't really know much about. I, I've watched Clone Wars kind of on and off. I, I've seen a handful of episodes that involve Jar Jar, uh, but he played a pretty key role in the series. Yeah, and Jar Jar has done actually a lot, and I would go so far as to actually call him a war hero and a diplo- diplomatic hero. Like He was very active during the Clone <laughs> Wars. He was part of that is true uh although they don't really make it seem that way like with the way they portray him but i digress uh you know he was very active during the clone wars he was part of several diplomatic missions and he helped uh several plans avoid major conflicts he was 
in all these instances, you know, he's bumbling as usual. I think that the show is really playing to the stereotype, the, uh, or sorry, the general like perception of Jar Jar Binks as being like bumbling, but he'd always save the day in the end. Uh, he had a mission to, to, to Daria, uh with Bail Organa, my personal favorite, to ask the king to use a planet as a supply staging base to free Ryloth, and they were successful in doing that. He was with Padme on several missions, and you know, out of this like conflict that he helped start, he did some real good actually. Yeah, I, I've seen some episodes with him uh, doing a standoff with General Grievous. Uh, there was an instance where he was supposed to impersonate uh, another member of like mm-hmm. the Gungan High Council and then go to a meeting with General Grievous and pretend to be somebody else. And it's, <laughs> it's kind of comic and silly, but here's some audio from that. I hear you have decided not to aid our attack on the Naboo. Oh, yes, sir. Uh, yes, sir. We must put end to unfortunate, unfortunate bang-bang conflict. It was a great effort and cost for me to bring my armies here. Mr. Sorry, that boss. <coughs> Excuse me. Uh, um... Mr. was receiving muy bad advice. If you won't attack the Naboo, I will. Oh, that uh, gen- general. Yeah, Dyer? so you know, there's there's the war hero, uh, <laughs> Jar Jar, making his impact uh, on the Clone Wars. You know, he he, he sort of adds again like comic relief to the entire series and i think one of the better episodes that i recall was when he was with yeah. mace windu on a mission um involving the night sisters and mother talzin that yeah, was, like, that was there actually was a, a really good uh, monarch on that planet named queen julia by the way that's like the one of the most normal names i've ever heard in star wars she sounds so english uh yeah so he and mace windu were helping the planet i think as they were being assaulted by the night sisters in which you know you had mother talzin herself like you know on this planet so you know our boy jar jar has actually seen some pretty big conflicts and you know you can even like point to uh his actions on mon Cala, which is the home world of the mon calamari uh that's admiral akbar species in which like they had to deal with a coup yeah. there or sorry yeah like first the assassination of their king uh yos kalina and you know, Republic forces went to help the monarchy, and when they couldn't really do the job, Jar Jar was actually instrumental in getting Gungan recruits to help. And I think they were instrumental in helping decide that conflict. Yeah, well, I think that pretty much covers just sort of the general point of that Jar Jar yeah. did not go away at the end of episode two. He's he's deeply involved in all the canon that follows. It's it's just that he doesn't get any more screen time after episode two. You, you know, we all know in the real world here that Jar Jar was a complete wipeout with fans and with critics. And, you know, George Lucas I, kind of begrudgingly, I think, tucked the entire thing away and by episode three jar jar uh received no speaking lines he was only seen in the beginning and the very end of the movie um for padme's funeral uh, with the title of chief mourner (laughs) he was the chief mourner of the funeral (laughs) whatever 
<laughs> I don't know. It was in uh, it was in Wikipedia. I'm pretty uh, sure that the term was capitalized, and it was like, "What is the the chief mourner?" So uh, yeah, we have we have junior senator and then chief mourner uh, Jar Jar Binks. But the end of story uh, for Jar Jar is is very interesting. You know, we've not as fans really gotten much information on. So what the heck happens to this guy after the prequel trilogy? He's not in the originals. He is not in the new movies, just, you know, thank heavens. Uh, but we do finally hear about Jar Jar's fate, if you will, in Chuck Wendig's 2017 novel, Star Wars Aftermath, Empire's End. This is set in the after uh, aftermath, you know, if you will, of Return of the Jedi. We find Binks in the streets performing as a street performer, entertaining refugee children, but adults in the town that he is in hate him and blame him for the rise of the Empire. Talk about a fitting ending to his story. It sounds like he was performing before fandom was in, the, so in the streets sad of New York. To read, like in every way you can imagine, he's just like the bumbling street corner clown, or who, yeah, like you said, like adults despise him, Gungans and humans alike, but the children enjoy watching him trying to juggle, and it's it's insane to think, yeah. Do you think that you think that he's homeless, or do you think that he's a street performer? I I, I would think that he's a street performer, and he is homeless. He is homeless as well. It's kind of insane to think about that. This once one of the representatives of this entire world has been reduced to this. It I, I like <laughs> reading this passage. I thought just wow like i mean in general i'll say like i'm not the biggest fan of jar jar so like i didn't really care that much one way or the other whatever happened to him but this was like kind of shocking to read and i guess it has sort of an ozymandias-esque quality that you can go from being one of the uh (laughs) being from the top tiers of society to you know something so pathetic you know Look, Look on, on his Jar Jar's works, he might in despair. Like the, the galactic <laughs> conflict, the instigator yeah. of the galactic conflict, or one of the key instigators, has been reduced to this, and it's really sad. Yeah, it's it, well, it is sad, and and just for people who are not up on on these novels, so Chuck Wendig's Aftermath series would have these interludes in between chapters where it would sort of offer background information on other things going on in the galaxy in italics for like one or two pages. So this is kind of where we got a, a glimpse, you know, in the crystal ball of what's going on with that Jar Jar fellow, and it seems to be homelessness and being a jester, and you know. I guess you have to assume that if he's homeless on the streets of Naboo, not only did he lose all of his prestige and power and connections uh, on land, he lost them under the sea in Otagunga as well. He has to have been disowned by the Gungans once again. Uh, I don't. I, I don't know if Boss Nass is still Nass around. Passed Maybe he away. passed yeah. on. I and someone else Boss came Nass over. was one of his only yeah. apologists, and once he passed Jar didn't really have many allies left unfortunately 
Yeah, and I, I'm sure I'm sure the Gungans were aware politically mm-hmm. of the the mistake that was made, and were once again embarrassed of clumsy Jar Jar. And it, you know, again, I, I know how most fans feel about Jar Jar Binks, but just sort of putting myself into the Star Wars canon, into the mindset of the fan, the real, you know, like engaged fan, taking his fate that we know about now, and then contrasting it to that smile on his face as he mm-hmm. you know makes that deciding vote it's it's again we've said it a bunch it's it's sad it's kind of pathetic um and you just sort of feel bad for someone who goes into politics so naive um uh, and uninformed and frankly just politically ignorant about the decisions that they're making and this going in with this idea that like everybody has good intentions and nobody's going to try to prey on you trick you yeah. um, and use you and I think he he just fell he failed up into this position and then he was he used really was and then tossed and aside. As much as like he's been derided, you have to remember that this is just a dude who genuinely has always wanted to do good, who didn't you know he was really just like thrust into this situation that he barely knew about and. I think we both agree that by Attack of the Clones that he didn't really fully grasp the ramifications of his vote or, you know, it just like really stresses how maybe Jar Jar should have had more of an education, how like we need to understand more about these issues before diving headfirst into them. And it's just like really, again, just super sad you know, I think like we want to encourage political participation at all sort of levels and we should like you should always try to get involved. But like, sure. I don't know, like maybe not everyone's cut out to be a politician, yeah. I guess, I guess is what I'm saying. So our, over the course of 65 episodes of Beltway Banthas, I, you've made yourself quite clear about how you feel about Jar Jar. So I kind of feel you know, ridiculous asking, you know, we've got, do we like Jar Jar? And does it matter if we like him sort of as the next plank of this conversation? I know you don't like Jar Jar. Uh, do you think it matters whether or not fans like him? Uh, in you know, terms of the I will movies, say, story, I think I'm starting that. to get much more of an appreciation for Jar Jar. I've actually met quite a handful of fans. I know quite a handful of uh, podcasters, bloggers who really like and appreciate this character and what he represents. And they genuinely feel for him. And honestly, I will say, like doing this research, I, you know, again, have gained this appreciation. I don't actively dislike Jar Jar anymore. I think that I'm mostly neutral on him as a character, but I can empathize and understand, you know, his overarching journey. And, you know, I would actually uh, not be mad or anything if this Gungan somehow after Aftermath, I doubt this would ever happen, but somehow like be found to bounce back and maybe find a vocation that really fits with what he wants to do. Maybe he makes a circus on Naboo and that's like the way he lives the rest of his life. Uh, but, I, but yeah, I will say that uh, I think Jar Jar is meant to represent innocence. He's meant to represent naivete when we're delving into these really serious issues. And, and there's a, yeah, like again, a uh, innocent child quality, innocence and in, yeah, what's the word I'm looking for? An innocent childish uh, quality about that that I think deserves 
uh, recognition, I think is important, but I don't say think it's been executed yeah. very well, if that makes sense. Sure. Yeah. My, my feelings on Jar Jar have always been sort of ambivalence. He doesn't bother me. Like when I watch Star Wars, I watch episode one, it's not taking up the, the majority of my focus. I'm, I'm, I'm enamored with other things in the movie and I see this character who is clearly there for kids who are half my age uh, and half my age, even when the movie came out and I just focus on other things. So my, my opinion on Jar Jar has always been like, people are just overly obsessed with him. So I found this, I found this audio clip that I wanted to share from college humor where they did a skit on uh, Jar Jar hate. That is basically a summary of how I feel about this. So God, turn it off. What's wrong, Eric? What's wrong, Zach? I'll tell you what's wrong. Have you guys seriously forgotten how fucking stupid Jar Jar Binks is? Jar Jar Binks from episode one. Wasn't that like 15 years ago? 16 years, seven months, and three weeks. And I could still smell the funk that Jar Jar Binks left behind when he took a huge, disgusting shit all over George Lucas's trilogy. I mean, kind of. I don't actively think about Jar Jar Binks, to be honest. With you. Yeah, and so the gist the gist of that audio is, you know, like, there's always just, like, this one guy, this other fan, this one person who just, they cannot stop talking about Jar Jar. You ask them, like, hey, do you like Star Wars? And they're like, yeah, but, you know, Jar Jar Binks, like, no, yeah, no. And like, like, I didn't ask about, like, Jar Jar Binks. Like, I asked about Star Wars. Star Wars is, is at this point, like, eight, nine movies and, and you're still obsessed with this guy. Like you're still obsessed with this thing from episode one and in 1999. And there's this huge swath of fans who just have not let it go. And it, it, I think it is just sort I of agree. taking up I think way that, too much real estate and fandom. Like much prequel hate, it's very overblown. And just let it go. It's like, sure, you don't like it. You can just say that and move on. And guess what? There are people that genuinely like this character uh, who actually like enriches the films for them. Yeah. There are a lot of children that really love this character that really like or love this character. Uh, it's uh, I think it's just like one of those things. Like when you look at prequel discourse, I think that there are things in the prequels that are very, very unlike the original trilogy. And those tend to be highlighted in talking about the division between the two eras and you know it's okay to say like you simply don't like the prequels that much like i personally don't like them much as movies i think there are so many fascinating elements in there but i personally don't think they're the best quality of films but i can still appreciate them and i can appreciate them through discussion with you and my other friends like who really love the prequels and i think that's just awesome you know, like we can learn from that and we can learn from Jar Jar. Like I feel like I've been learning about this, again, this lovable, goofy Gungan and just generally like makes me appreciate it more. It's one of those aspects of the prequels that George really wanted to highlight, you know, like that, again, that political ignorance and how it can go wrong. Yeah, I in and you mentioned sort of you know love of Jar Jar among among some fans, and it's it's very real. Um, you know, Brian Young of Full of Sith talks about Jar Jar a lot. He he likes him. He's he sort of connects with sort of that um, that innocence that you mentioned. He talks about that a lot on the podcast. And you know, if the question is like, did Jar Jar do anything worthwhile in Star Wars? Like, why have him? I mean, he was a plot device in many ways. He sort of existed to move certain parts of the story along. And so I want to get religious for just a moment and state that last week when I went to church, the the sermon was about Moses and how, 
you had Moses who was fearful of and rejected initially God's command for him to be the one to free Israel from Egypt. And when God came to Moses and wanted him to do this, Moses said, no, he said, I am a man of faltering lips uh, in some translations. So as to say, he was not well-spoken. He considered himself um, slow, uh, not very smart. And the entire point of this was that, you know, God works. God works through broken people. God works through people who are inept, who 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 do not measure up, um, because what makes uh, you know what makes us whole is having God you know work through you and be part of your life. And in doing this episode and kind of putting the prep together for this, I I actually started thinking about it the exact same way. The Force has a plan, and you have to acknowledge that in Star Wars, the Force is moving certain uh, pieces on the board and moving people into the story, moving people out of the story based on what its will is. Now, we don't fully understand the nature of the force and what balance of the force is and what the prophecy is. That's all kind of like Jedi religion. But it's worth reflecting on how the Force works through characters to enact that will. And Jar Jar embodies in many ways a sort of providence where despite failure after failure after failure, he moves the story along its path, you know, from like running into Sebulba and causing trouble, which then brings Anakin back into the picture to reconnect with the group and then move that relationship along to a point where, you know, we get Anakin and Qui-Gon together and, and sort of the relationship that stems from there. Qui-Gon saw this in Jar Jar as well, and he thought he was a, a creature worth saving, preserving, and bringing along with them. And he sensed that sort of same thing in Anakin. And I kind of wonder if Palpatine senses this as well with Jar Jar, that Jar Jar was just someone who good things happened to, that the Force favored him, and he exploited that for his own purposes. Like He knew that Jar Jar would be someone he could use down the road. Am I crazy? Yeah, actually, I think you hit the nail on the head. You know, we know that Qui-Gon was a student of the living force, that he very much went along with its will in every way that he could. Yeah, I think that Palpatine, just like Qui-Gon, saw something significant in Jar Jar and utilized his, you know, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Serendipitous uh, position for his uses. So yeah, I think you're yeah, totally yeah. on the money there. Also, for a pessimist, pessimistic view of Jar Jar, let's talk briefly about political ignorance, because we don't have a lot of time left in this episode. But one of the premises of this episode was that Jar Jar sort of encapsulates um, going into politics blindfolded, or as somebody who lives in the, the greater galaxy, is just not aware of what is going on around him, aware of the issues. Ilya Salman of the Cato Institute often cites Jar Jar as a symbol of what political ignorance is. He's an author of a book on political ignorance and often writes about the damage that uninformed voters and political actors can have on a free society and a democracy. I happen to see him speak in Washington, D.C. alongside uh, an Obama alum, Cass Sunstein, where Ilya said this, 
Americans do not know the three branches of the federal government and lack an understanding of basic economics. They may not make them the real-world equivalent of Jar Jar, but it poses a danger to self-government. Democracy doesn't come off particularly good in the prequel trilogy. Uh, he pointed out then that you know, sort of the heroism involved in keeping the peace in the Old Republic comes from the Jedi rather than the largely powerless Galactic Senate, which is bogged down in bureaucracy and procedure, which is to say that the, the, the Republic was less dangerous to the people. The, the actual citizens of the galaxy when it was bureaucratic, not working, and sort of things were just going along business as usual. But when you sort of like injected um, these actors into the process that didn't know what was going on, it became dangerous. You had Jar Jar in the center of things, and he had no business being there. He doesn't know anything about the process. And immediately, that is really fell apart. fascinating. I don't want to make direct parallels with people in our own government currently. I could think of, you know, I'm someone who very much wants more technocratic elements in our government. I want people who are advanced in their knowledge on economics, technology, trade, politics generally. I want really smart people in government. You know, the phrase that yeah, you know the phrase, uh, president should be too. someone you can have a beer with. My history teacher uh, in, from high school said a really smart thing. No, I don't want the president to be someone I can simply have a beer with. I want him, to be, him or her to be much smarter than that. So it's, uh, yeah. it's sort of like a balancing act where you want someone who's personable, that you can get along with, that you feel like you can trust versus that sense of professionalism and that sense of just being extremely smart in government. I think that what we're seeing so much right now is yeah. so much more focus on the personality. Now, I think that's a large part of why Trump got elected. You know, I think almost on one, or almost 100% or besides like Hillary hate, Democratic hate, like it's a probably the biggest reason like why Trump got elected president because of his personality and yeah. simply saying that I'm going to fight for you. I'm a guy just like you who can, I'm like from New York and <laughs> like he was a very effective at making that sort of connection. Yeah. I mean, I'm, I am not a, a populist. I, when, when politicians, mm -hmm. I'm sorry, when they talk about, you know, what they're going to do for the people, like my, my skin just crawls. Um, I, I really don't think that that is the best way to go about trying to make policy when you beat the drum as if you sort of speak for the the nebulous the people i i'm more of a technocrat as well like i really believe that there should be smart sophisticated people in government um i i know that that creates a hubris problem i know that that creates a disconnect between the government and the people that they're supposed to serve obviously things can always go too far in in one direction um but i i do like merit you government in some way there there was an, an Annenberg survey um, from two years ago, and, and it showed that 36% of Americans, 36% can name the three branches of the federal government being the executive, legislative, and judicial branches. And we currently have a freshman congressman in the House now who failed this question in a Facebook Live just last week. Uh, you know, Americans generally, they don't even uh, know or they miss... Uh, 
misunderstand like what our budget priorities are. People will say that we we spend like 36% of the national budget on foreign aid when in fact it is 1%. People think foreign uh, foreign affairs spending like military spending out outranks social security when in fact social right. security is over one third of the budget uh, and military spending is, is significantly smaller. But we just sort of as voters and, and people involved, um, we, we just don't know. And people just sort of talk out their butts about this stuff and then hire politicians uh, to the job to go represent them who confirm for them their biases and their inaccurate exactly. ideas. It's frankly a very simplistic way of thinking. You know, you can just look at the highest office person in the land right now, Trump, and his continuous, quote, promise to make a wall that Mexico will pay for. We see this debate happening right now in Congress about it's, not, it's never going to happen, but he's threatening a shutdown over happen. it, of all things. And like, you can compare that, I would say, to Jar Jar's, frankly, simplistic thinking that giving the chancellor emergency powers is going to make everything okay, that he's doing something very heroic, that, you know, a certain contingent of uh, galactic citizens and politicians might want, but is really just going to completely destroy this democracy in the long run and it's like mm. we do have to strive for those ideals always like you know not the wall or army you know what i'm talking about like uh, political ideals generally whichever uh i'll side of the aisle you're on and like you know hopefully that's for a more equitable and safer society but when you simply speak in those platitudes and you really become those platitudes in your career, you are walking a very dangerous path without that real dedication and knowledge that the complex works, the complex work of government really requires. Some of Ilya Summon's writing on political ignorance uh, talks about um, political actors being voters as sort of political fans, an equivalent of sort of sporting fans. Like people literally are like born into UNC families. They're born into Duke families. And then they just sort of cheer for these, these groups. They just cheer for them. They, they, they go to the sporting events, they put on the face paint and they just sort of literally beat their chests over these teams that they, they don't really have any sometimes connection to. They're just their team and, and they, their engagement, a sports mm-hmm. fan, a Real sports fans' engagement in sports can be so strong and so unreasonable, yeah. and it's but it's done like for fun. And one of the reasons, one of the reasons that I backed away uh, a while back from doing electoral politics work was because the red shirt, blue shirt thing, <laughs> like just nauseated me like you you had you had these people you know in the headquarters you know doing get out the vote stuff who they just like they just kind of came up in republican families and this was this was sport to them it it was not not about certain ideas they didn't really have that strong of opinions if anything they were just there because because what they're supposed to do and and we have so many people involved who are going to vote every single election uh, just based on uh, what family they're born into and, and what facts they sort of choose to ignore, um, you know, seeking out information that confirms their biases, going to news sources that make them think that they're right. It, we sort of have, again, no more common consensus 
uh, in this country on on what is real, what is fake, um, you know, statistics that are mm-hmm. just true, statistics that are just uh, you know obviously false. This is a real problem, and and political ignorance in many ways is something that is chosen. Like I never want to say that like the voters are stupid. The voters are not stupid, um, but I, I do think that people pick and mm-hmm. choose facts that they want, and that is ignorance. I think ignorance is different from stupidity. Stupidity is like you can't understand mm-hmm. stuff when it's when it's given to you. You know, like you you tell somebody something, you lay it out for them, and they just don't get it. Ignorance is like choosing to walk away from that information. And I think that that's more of the problem that we have with our voters is not stupidity. It's yeah, just choosing I ignorance. Definitely agree with that. I think that there are so many statistics relating to healthcare, immigration, spending that we do not fully acknowledge like as a body politic in this country and in the political discourse, for example, like with immigration, it's made to seem so much more of a dire issue than it actually is. And uh, yeah, it's legal. Illegal immigration is immigration. Or did you say illegal or legal? (laughs) Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah. Sorry. Illegal, illegal illegal immigration at historic lows, but we're still talking about it now as though like this is the deciding issue of our time. No, it's only a deciding issue because Trump and certain Republicans want to make it a deciding issue. And it's like, yeah. I, I guess I, I guess I don't fully agree with that perspective on that. I mean, I, I think it's an, I think it is a, an issue because people have strong feels about it. And it's pretty clear at this point that this is like the defining issue for right of center voters. I, I think I underestimated it when I was coming up in politics, like how strong people emote over immigration. And at this point, I think just because the government has not done anything to respond to those needs and those wants from people, it's gotten to this point where it's just completely out of control and unreasonable as a debate. Um, but again, like we're, we're, everyone's kind of going off these, these sort of paranoid facts or these ideas that like immigration is out of control when in fact it's, you know, it's been in decline. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. It's, it's a mess. <laughs> we're, we are at time. This is, this has been a, uh, a, a great episode. This has been a lot of fun. I did not think I would enjoy talking about Jar Jar as much as I did today. Swara. Same. I actually really enjoy talking about this character whom, I have had a distaste towards for so long, but now, you know, with this conversation, with conversation with other friends and fandom, you know, I want to give a shout out to Charlotte, Caitlin um, of Sky Talkers, uh, Kirstie of Scavengers Horde and others like this has been a really honestly enriching discussion. We could not do this show without our amazing patrons who donate uh, to our show as little as $1 a month to higher levels. Uh, We couldn't do this show without you. And we would like to give a very special shout out to Connie Shi, Chestin Lee, Nathan Hartwig, Isaiah Leslie, Andrew Siner, Nick DeCalandria, Sarah Smith, BJ Smith, Jessica Shitara, Jared Cantor, Tish Wells, Sarah Strain, and Sean Mahan. Thank you all so, so much for donating to the show. You have no idea how much it means to us. And yeah, if you're interested in becoming a patron, like hit us up on Beltway Banthas, or sorry, uh, patreon.com slash Beltway Banthas. All right. And that brings us to our final segment of the show where Suara and I dish on something that has been on our minds, uh, politics, Star Wars, or otherwise. It is called Bantha Fodder. Suara, 
What is your fodder this week? What has got your mind all wrapped up in it? So this week, a new story broke a couple of days ago that has really been rattling at my mind and just been really frustrating me. After the election, I was so elated, so happy with the results. It was a blue wave. We had made so many gains. But in Wisconsin and Michigan and another state, I can't recall at the moment, you had the state legislators. uh, I'm going to talk about Wisconsin only. The Republican legislator, uh, before the new Democratically Democratic uh, elected governor uh, Evers uh, step into office. They decided, and they just passed, uh, yeah, today, a sweeping measure to limit the new governor's powers, the new Democratic governor's powers, and they gave it to Scott Walker, the outgoing Republican governor, to sign. Basically, this legislation has limited early voting and has. Uh, weaken the ability of the governor to take the state out of a lawsuit that they are in conjunction with other states to uh, try to declare the Affordable Care Act unconstitutional or like, sorry, not the whole Affordable Care Act. I think it's just the Medicaid uh, expansions unconstitutional. And this goes against the mandate that the incoming Democratic uh, governor had when he was running And there's another measure in this to limit the ability of the attorney general of the state. It's 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 the sheer definition of being a sore loser. And it just really infuriates me. I I this is undemocratic. There's no other way to talk about this. It's just. You know, you can't say that, oh, I'm simply trying to rebalance uh, the power between the legislator and the executive. Okay, if that is really what you want to do, then why didn't you do that way back when Scott Walker was still in office? It's just and the thing is, like this republic, as I recall, this Republican legislator is still going to be, you know, the majority like in uh, Wisconsin in the new term. So I you know, I saw a couple of my friends like going to protest at the state capitol, and I'm super proud of them. Shout out to Danny Pirtle. Uh, he posted his about his uh, protest on Twitter. But I also just feel like really sad for that. It's, you know, like there was a campaign promise that this governor was going to deliver on to help protect the ACA in his state. And unless like there's a sufficient legal challenge to what the Republican legislator has done, uh, you know, he won't be able to deliver on that mandate. So I guess like, I'm just like really irritated by this. I hope that more people wake up and recognize how important what happens at the state level is. And hopefully we can prevent this sort of thing from happening again. You know, North Carolina recently was actually declared as, not a democracy because of a lot of measures like this. Let's preserve the integrity of our balance of powers at the state level. Like we need to pay much more attention to this level of government along with local levels. Yeah, it's kind of a depressing band of fodder, but it's kind of what's been on my mind. And again, listeners, I just hope that you'll take more attention to 
to like focus on this and help prevent it in the future. So that's my fodder for this week. <laughs> oh boy, I'm going to hold my tongue on that North Carolina bit. All right. So my Bantha fodder for uh, this week, I, I'm, I'm just going to go light and fluffy. I got a dog. It's It's been sort of the, uh, the most exciting thing going on uh, in my world uh, for the past two weeks. My, my wife and I had a dog by the name of Norton uh, before our daughter came along eight years ago. Uh, we loved that dog, had him during college, and when the baby was on the way, uh, we couldn't do it all. We, we weren't really ready to be parents, and we had to find a place for that dog to go. He ended up going and staying with one of my great friends, joined their family who had like five kids, loved on him. It was a fantastic situation. But dogs have always been really central to my life, and that was a really heartbreaking thing to do. And since Sylvie was born, and we've been sort of trying to to work and find places to live, we've never had a pet-friendly apartment and uh, money to actually pay and support a dog. And after eight years of working to make it uh, possible, we finally got a young one-year-old doggo from a rescue two weeks ago by the name of Kylo. Uh, yes, that is now his name. It used to be Miles. Uh, is Kylo. He's a German shepherd mix of some variety with something skinny, one-year-old, really, really sweet. A um, little, little nervous at everything he hears around the house, but just a great dog. And I've just been so happy. I've just been so happy to have that around the house. And it's really been interesting because I've just been less anxious. I have a lot of nervous energy where I always am bouncing from one task to the next. I, I kind of always want to check my email or hop online and work on a project. I want to do some research for Beltway Banthas. I, I, I just don't like use my downtime very well because I just have things I want to accomplish and do. And I don't think that it's a bad thing that in the past two weeks, I've just wanted to lay down and just pet the darn dog and just lay down, do the cuddling thing, just, you know, get licked, like all that stuff. Like it's just relaxing. Um, and it just feels really great. I, I feel like I got myself a de facto support animal for my, uh, my nervous energy and anxiety. And it's just so wonderful. Um, so you will see me, uh, bubbling over on my Instagram. Uh, if you want to follow me there, Stephen of Kent, he is a good good boy. That is my Bantha fodder, Suara. It's been a great two weeks in the world of Kent. He is such a good boy. I've been looking at all of his pictures. <laughs> Kylo.res. Beautiful. I'm so happy for you guys. Oh, oh, our daughter's just so delighted. She's, you know, she's been clamoring for a sibling for, you know, since the moment that Aww. she could talk. And we're like, yeah, that, yeah that's not going to happen, <laughs> but we will, get, we will get you a dog one day. And I, as a dad, as a dad, I just felt proud when I was finally able to pull together the money and, you know, say that the apartment complex would allow it and make it happen for her. Because, you know, we, we started as a family really young, mm -hmm. uh, too young uh, to, to really know what we were doing. And we just never were able to make that happen, you know, or have a house with a yard. So it's like for, for me as a, as a young dad, it was like one of the first 
moments when we were able to go get that dog when I was like, I'm, I'm doing this for my daughter and she'll maybe remember me for it. <laughs> so, yeah, uh, I, I hope that pans out and I hope that it continues to be a good situation. But yeah, it's been a happy thing. So that is it for episode 65 of Beltway Bantha's Jar Jar Binks and Political Ignorance. This has been a real pleasure. And we will be back the week after next with more for episode 66, in which we will execute episode 66, and we will do it well. We promise you that. You can find out more about Beltway Banthas online at retrozap.com slash Beltway dash Banthas. And you can follow us on Twitter at Beltway Banthas. And you can find me on Twitter at Stephen underscore Kent 89. That's Stephen with a PH underscore Kent 89 for all of the political and Star Wars takes on Twitter. Suara, where can they find you, my man? You can follow me on Twitter for Star Wars politics, data, and flash takes because I'm also a co-host of the Flash podcast. Uh, you can follow me on at uh, Swarz Seawalker. That's S W A R Z S E A W A L K E R. Like I mentioned, I'm also a co-host of the Flash podcast, and I'm also a contributor for the But Why Though podcast family. So check out some of my writings on there. Last month, I had a review of Creed 2. Spoiler: I really enjoyed it, and you should see it in the theaters. All right. We are part of the RetroZap podcast family. We will be back the week after next with more. Until then, may the force be with you. Always.